0: Thanks for joining us on Fresh Faith. We're excited to bring you a special season of the podcast. Ron and former Pittsburgh Steeler, Tunch Ogan have worked alongside one another for years. You may remember Tunch on some previous episodes of the podcast. A while back, they teamed up to do a special series on the Journey Radio called Biblical Manhood. This series has been one of the most well-received series, and so we knew we just had to bring it to you on the podcast. Welcome back to Fresh Faith. We're currently working through our series, Biblical Manhood. In today's episode, we talk about the steps of true repentance. Men, what steps are necessary to demonstrate one has left sin behind? How can we and the ones we've wronged know that we're serious about changing? On today's podcast, Ron and Tunch begin to look at the vital issues as it relates to leaving an affair.
1: I want to thank you for joining us on the journey. I'm Ron Moore, and joining me for a special series addressing real issues with real men is Tunch Ilkin. Tunch is a former Pittsburgh Steeler, a 14-year veteran of the NFL, a pastor of men's ministry at the Bible Chapel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and a national speaker sought after throughout the country. (laughs) 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 Oh, you're killing me. Uh, I've spoken to like five states.
2: Yeah, real soddo after throughout the whole country. And and
1: did I say 14-year Pro Bowl? (laughs) Does speaking at a regional event for Pittsburghers in California count? (laughs) It counts. It counts. You were with two guys last night, right? That counts. That that counts. I've had conversations in almost every state and – the United yeah. States of America. I called someone uh, from California last I, uh, night. I just spoke in California. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Tunch, a few years ago, a pastor of this large church, you would know who he was. He was a president of a large association, and he gradually admitted to purchasing some drugs and the services of a male prostitute. He's since been dismissed from the church and leadership and all that. Writing about that situation A writer named Gordon McDonald said this about the sex drive within us. I'm no stranger to failure and public humiliation. For those terrible moments of 20 years ago in my life, I've come to believe that there is a deeper person in many of us who is not unlike an assassin. The deeper person can be the source of attitudes and behaviors we normally stand against in our own conscious being, but it seeks to destroy us and masses' energies that unrestrained tempt us to do the very thing we believe against. Mm. If you have been burned as deeply as I and my loved ones have, you never live a day without remembering that there is something within that left unguarded will go on the rampage. Wallace Hamilton once wrote, Within each of us there is a herd of wild horses wanting to run loose. That's a powerful statement. Yeah, you know, there is
2: a wildness to us. I love the language that he uses, left unguarded, unbridled. To the wild horse analogy, you know, I love horses, and there's nothing more beautiful than a wild horse, and it kicks up. And we look at that as a great display of strength and power, and we're very attracted to it, but we also know that that can be
1: so destructive. That can be so dangerous to ourselves and to those that we love. Left unrestrained, left unguarded, this herd of wild horses wanting to run loose. And the last time we were together, we talked about King David. Mm -hmm. And David certainly had the herd of wild horses Mm -hmm. running within him, and he allowed them to run loose. He left himself unguarded. He was alone. His men were out in the battle, and he stayed behind for whatever reason. We don't understand that. And then he was unrestrained. He had a temptation. He saw Bathsheba. He called her up. He committed adultery with her. Baby is conceived. He's confronted now Mm -hmm. by Nathan. We saw last time. And we need those Nathans to confront us. And now David realizes that he's the man. Nathan said, you're the man. You're the man who has sinned. And then David says, I have sinned. Mm -hmm. So David admits his sin. At some point, David wrote, Psalm 51, and we have to know that he didn't just say, I have sinned, now I'm going to go write Psalm 51. Right. But even better than that, as he goes through the process, there's a time when he goes back and he writes down, here's what I was thinking, here's the process I went through. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm of true repentance. Mm -hmm. And I always want to use that descriptor, true repentance, Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of guys who are sorry they got caught, but not sorry for what they did. So play that out. Yeah. If I hadn't gotten caught, I'd still be doing it. Right. And so we wanna look at what true repentance is. So let's just work our way through this Psalm. Right there at the beginning, how would you like this in scripture? For the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. One of the things, Tunch, we see in here, and let's just start with this one, is that godly repentance is a godly sorrow proven by sustained changed behavior. So if you're in an affair, you get caught, you're sorry you got caught, and you go back to what you were doing, you don't cut off every note you've gotten, every gift you've gotten, every physical connection. Mm-hmm. You're not really demonstrating true repentance, are you? No. You were talking about some that are caught
2: in affairs. There's an arrogance, and there's this willful opposition to the discipline and to the confrontation. Not only is it, I'm sorry I got caught, but I'm sorry are the consequence that came with me being caught. One of the guys that I counseled many, many years ago who had multiple affairs, he said, when you commit the first affair it's a lot easier to commit the second one. And there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, there is this point of reference. I did it, and especially if you get away with the first affair. And so if you get away with the first affair and you may get caught in the second affair and you act like you're walking away, you are very, very vulnerable. There is an addiction to that. And one of the things that was probably the biggest surprise to me, Ron, in talking to different men, and everybody's affair is a little bit different, and one of the things that struck me, that arrogance that's not willing to walk away from it. Then there is this guy who can't. I never thought until I started counseling men that there is actually an addiction. I got the physical. I can understand that. One of the things that shocked me was this emotional connection and almost this helplessness that I've seen in some of these guys. Man, I can't stop thinking about this one. I can't let this go. That has been
1: something that has... Is- been very new to me. Mm -hmm. So the warning is, before you go into it, you got to know that. Guys going through this, this is going to be hard work. Yeah. But the right thing to do is often the hard thing to do. Godly sorrow. Let's just think about what that looks like. Godly sorrow, first of all, is a heavy, heartfelt emotion. David says in verse 16, God, you don't delight in sacrifices or I bring it. Man, if Mm -hmm. I could go offer a calf or Mm -hmm. something, that'd be easy. It'd be (laughs) easy. Yeah, I'd do that. I'd do that in a heartbeat, yeah. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. The Hebrew word for broken here means to break into pieces. It's used to describe a clay pot that's fallen on the ground and shattered. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a guy who is broken and humbled. His sin is shattered. His pride is crushed. There's conviction and shame and guilt. You gotta start there. Yeah, and that's when the real work begins. And
2: once again, another example, another guy was confronted. He was gonna confess a sin to his wife, and there was this intense brokenness before God. And he shared how he was in his backyard and he was on his face before God. And there was a weeping, and part of his brokenness and the reason he was weeping was that he knew how badly it was gonna hurt his wife. Mm -hmm. And he was going to be the bearer of that pain. And you think about that. As men, we are wired as protectors. We are wired to protect our wives, to protect our children, to really give our lives. So when we are the ones that are now going to devastate our wives with this news, with this confession, with this affair, when you talk about real godly sorrow, well, that's where the brokenness is, and that's where the weeping
1: and the gnashing of teeth and the real pain comes from. And here's the second point about godly sorrow. It's an unqualified admission of sin. You're going to have to tell your wife. Some guys will say, well, I got caught. I'm going to get out. I'm not going to tell my wife. You've got to do that. I think that's a demonstration that not quite there with the godly sorrow and true repentance because right. I'm keeping it back, right? From someone I've stolen from, yeah. I've heard guys
2: that I've talked to that have confessed that sin, it is without a doubt the hardest thing they've done Damn. in their life, yeah. without a doubt. So there is a brokenness, and when you really understand that heartfelt emotion, now you also are willing to take what comes with it mm-hmm. because you know that it's not going to be, gee, it's okay, honey, let's get on with our lives. There's going to be a lot of work with that.
1: Godly sorrow is unqualified admission of sin, no excuses, Right. no blame on others. If my wife had been a better wife, I wouldn't have committed adultery. Certainly others may have contributed, but you're the man, you sin, own up to it. And it kills me, touch, when guys say, well, I know I did this, but my wife did A, B, and C. And I know a guy is not serious about repentance mm-hmm. when he's defending himself right. with what he's done, because there's no defense here. Right, and there's this desire
2: to deflect responsibility. Yeah. I'm really not that bad. You're right. You've
1: got to just come clean with it and admit to it. David said, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before mm-hmm. me. And then he's talking to God against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Think about that. We yeah. talked about that in a previous right. session. What about Bathsheba? Right. What about Uriah? Uriah? There are going to be consequences for the whole country, and right. yet he knows that sin is against God yeah. you first know, and foremost. And this is for the guy that's in a sin that he's
2: getting away with it. You're sinning against God. If you rationalize it somehow that it's okay, and let's face it, guys can do that. They can rationalize that they're entitled to happiness and this is not that bad, but you are sinning against God and God alone.
1: And if that doesn't get to our hearts, then we have to really check where are we spiritually. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and my sin is always before you. There are three primary words in the Old Testament used for sin and two of them mean missing the mark or straying off the path. The one David uses here means to rebel or to revolt. Yeah. So he's saying, God, I looked you right in the face, and I said, to heck with you. I'll do what I want to do, open, absolute rebellion. And again, David is admitting it straight out. I rebelled against God. In the Hebrew, he puts rebellion first to emphasize it. My rebellion, I know. He knows that he has looked God in the face and revolted against the holy God. Godly sorrow is first a heartfelt emotion. It's an unqualified admission for sin. Godly sorrow drives us to redemption. It drives us to the desire to be forgiven and to be restored. Second Corinthians, Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So let's talk about that a little bit. Worldly sorrow says, "Gosh, I, I got caught. That's embarrassing. What uh, people going to say? What's Tunch going to say? <laughs> I mean, you know, the men's group, and my wife. And I shouldn't have done that." Worldly sorrow continues to be self-centered. Right. But godly sorrow says, "I sinned against God. I got to get this right. I have got to be forgiven. I have to be
2: restored." You know, there is a point where we truly understand our brokenness before God. And I think without understanding our brokenness in that sin and confessing that sin, we're not really in tune with who God is and who we are and what God's expectations of us are. And I've seen the guy that was broken. And that brokenness doesn't ever leave you. There is always the remorse over the pain that you've caused. There always is the remorse Over the brokenness that we have in our fellowship with God because when that man is in the midst of that affair There is a break in the fellowship. It's not like he's going to the Lord and saying hey Lord, what do you think of this? There is a running away from God and then when we come before him and we understand that there's this oh man Wow and when I've seen it in men who have truly truly been broken It's almost like there's this how could I have done
1: that? How could I have devastated so many with my actions. When I was preparing for this, I looked back in some of my notes on my computer, and I ran across four emails that a guy sent me who had just been in an affair, Mm -hmm. found out, and he came in here. He was devastated, Mm -hmm. just broken. And I titled those Emotions of an Affair because the pain that he was going through, true repentance, Mm -hmm. heartfelt emotion, and the descriptions of what was going on with his wife. Brokenness is an emotional, so this is hard work getting out of an affair, but, but you got to go through it. you got to go through this emotion. In this psalm, let me read these verses. We'll just pick out the words that David talks about here. He wants to change. He wants to be restored. He didn't want to go back to where he was. He didn't want to go near there. Verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed. Right rejoice, hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, Mm -hmm. and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. In that day, uh, the Holy Spirit could be taken from people. And David saw that firsthand with Saul. Saul Saul, went mad. David said, "Oh, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's some powerful stuff there.
2: You know, the man that's caught in the adulterous affair has to seek forgiveness from his wife, and that's part of the restoration of their marriage. But more importantly, there's this coming before God and understanding that only God can cleanse us. He is the only one that can offer true forgiveness. And so when David starts talking about this cleansing, it is a cleansing of one's sin at the level of our soul. And then there's the cleansing of your mind because there's still this point of reference that you have from this affair. And how do you get those images out of your mind? And more importantly, your wife, she's got some images. And I really believe that this happens supernaturally, that it is through God's grace as that is poured over us. David makes no bones about it. He wants clean. He wants his spirit to reconnect with God. And there's this understanding of that and that's what makes his prayer so real. How do you reconnect? How do you go back to oneness after an affair? How
1: oppressive is that guilt, that shame, the burden of breaking that covenant? Mm-hmm. You know, when you break the covenant in the New Testament, that's a reason for divorce. But we never counsel for divorce. We're right. always counseling to get people back together because God's honored by that. Hard work? yeah, Yeah. But God's going to be honored by that. Your kids are going to be honored by that. Your spouse is going to be honored by that. But you can't do it on your own. I was talking to a woman, and she said, he's out of the house. I cannot even think about talking to him. I can't even think about seeing him. And you're saying getting back together, I cannot think about that. And I said, you're right, you can't right now. It's got to be a supernatural act for that to happen. And every day, now through other people that they're counseling with, they're saying, okay, now a text went back and forth. There's some conversation going on. God's opening the heart. David's saying, cleanse me. Wash me, I'm dirty, I need a spiritual bath. Touch the point here, this is true repentance. David's not blowing this off. Wash me, I'm dirty, reform me. Create in me a new heart, repair me. There was a time when David stood up against Goliath. He was the guy who stood on behalf of God. Well now, he has dishonored the name of God and so he's saying, God, repair me, renew me, intervene for me, restore my joy. Sexual sin is a joy sucker. The guilt and shame chases that joy out of our heart. And David says, Please restore that joy. Recharge me. I love that. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain this obedience. Because again, hard days are ahead. And then, one more thing about godly sorrow before we move on here in this prayer for repentance is godly sorrow is proven by actions. In Acts 26, Verse 21, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and then all Judea and to the Gentiles also. Paul says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their actions. actions. True repentance accepts the consequences of sin mm-hmm. without crying foul. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. Whatever you do, you are right
2: in doing it. I got it coming. I deserve it. Though he asks for mercy, he doesn't try to get
1: out of it. He doesn't say, can I pass on this one? Mm -hmm. Now, for David, we see how this thing works in real life. Right. Nathan comes and says, the child born to you in Bathsheba is going to die. And the baby is sick. And David goes in. You remember, he doesn't eat. He's on the ground. And all of his advisors there outside saying, man, the baby's going to die. What's going to happen when he dies? And the baby dies. And then they're whispering in hushed tones. And David said, what are you talking about? The baby's dead, right? And they don't want to tell him. They think he's going to kill himself. And to their surprise, he gets up. He cleanses himself. He goes and eats. And they said, David, wait a minute. What's going on? Here? Well, what's up yeah. with this? When the baby was alive, you were in desperate straits. The baby's dead. Now you've cleansed yourself. You're eating. And David says, well, when the baby was alive, I was praying that God would save it. But God didn't and I'm accepting the consequences of my sin. Right. Now, someone say, well, that seems a little harsh with David. No, for David, if he would have continued to been on the ground and not eaten and not cleansed himself, he would have been saying to God, God, your judgment wasn't right. But in doing that, he's saying, God, you're right when you judge. Mm. That's a hard one, isn't it? It is a hard one. There yeah. are going to be consequences.
2: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, help David restore his relationship with God because he got it, he understood it. And then
1: you move on as best you can. You know, one thing, Tunch, if we're true to Scripture, we cannot gloss over this. God is gracious and he forgives. There are also consequences to sin. You kill someone, God can forgive you. You're still going to go to prison. Not only did the baby die... But Amnon rapes. Rapes Tamar. Uh, Tamar. Right. Absalom kills Ammon. Amnon. Yeah, right. Absalom then wants to take over, and he has a little scheme where he takes over. And remember, the advisor said, "Here's the way you really show you're in charge: sleep with all your father's concubines." And so, they put tents up on the top of the palace so everyone could see what was going on. Then his son Absalom is killed. Consequences. And David, that was
2: devastating consequences. Yeah, to David he's forgiven. And
1: his there's still consequences. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think that when someone comes out of that affair and now the restoration begins and there are consequences, I've seen men estranged from their children and working really hard to rekindle and reunite and reconcile that relationship. And guys that really understand, understand that the
1: reconciliation process is going to take a long time you're going to have to suffer those consequences. And I've seen this a lot of times, too. Your wife may not move along as quickly as you want her to move along on this right. forgiveness thing. You had this affair. You're broken. You're living under all this guilt and shame. You found out there's true repentance. Mm-hmm. You're restored. There's this burden off of the cover-up. And sometimes that guy will feel, I'm not even sure I was a believer beforehand. Mm-hmm. I've never felt so close to God. Right. So they're ready to roll. They're here to give their testimony right. at the men's group. Yeah. Their wives are over there and they're saying, ah, I wish she'd hurry up, you know yeah. I mean? I come on, I've asked forgiveness. No.
2: No. There's a lingering effect to that. And you know, with each couple too, I believe that process is different. Sometimes it's based on the maturity of the woman as well, but it is a process and it's never fixed overnight. And if you're truly like David and you say, surely you're just when you accuse, surely you are right when you judge, then now I've got to be willing to take whatever discipline comes my way. And David continued his life and continued living for God. But the devastation of that act with Bathsheba had its effect on his family on the kingdom of
1: Israel. Yeah. One more thing here from David's prayer of repentance. True repentance is found in one place. It's not found in the counselor's office, although you need some counseling and you need to work on some stuff. It's found in God's grace and it's found in God's mercy. Verse one, the first thank David prays. Yes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Again, David is pleading based on God's mercy and God's love, according to your unfailing love. That word unfailing love it's one of the most important truths of Scripture. It's the word Kessid, mm-hmm. And it talks about the covenant love that God has for us, the love that will not let us go. The word, according to your great compassion, is actually a Hebrew word, rakam. It comes from the word of mother's womb. So this intimate and tender feeling that a mother has for her child and develops as the child grows within her. And those are the two things, your loyal love mm-hmm. and your mother's, compassion for me. That's what I'm basing this prayer of forgiveness on.
2: And that is radical. Before I became a follower of Christ, when I was a Muslim, the thought that God would forgive a heinous act was so beyond my realm of thinking Mm -hmm. that God would forgive me unconditionally and restore me if I truly came to him. I mean, that is beyond what I could comprehend. And yet that's the God
1: that we serve the free gift of His grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He doesn't give us what we do deserve, grace and mercy. Tons. This is real issues for real men, right? Mm-hmm. When a guy messes up, that may be it. Right. That may be part of the consequence. Right. They got to know that. But for that guy, God is still there. Again, He's the one they've sinned against, and He's the one that that relationship needs to be restored. So if they lose some other people in their lives, and they could, God is always there. Yeah, and I think it's
2: important, too, because if we're not careful and if we're not really in tune with that, there could easily be this tendency to just run away completely. Mm -hmm. You know, I've blown it. That is unforgivable by God. But we are told by the Scriptures that God tells us, though your sin is as red as crimson, I will make it white Mm -hmm. as snow. And that's a great picture there of the deep red of blood and God will make us white as snow and God is a forgiving loving God and although we may hold that sin and it might almost be paralyzing because we can't get it out of our minds the Lord says I will remember it no more as far as the east is to the west and to think that that's the kind of God we serve whatever has happened God
1: still will not abandon me Mm -hmm. and I need to run back to him there's a great story about a guy named George Matheson he was born in 1842, a brilliant scholar. He completed his degree at the University and the Seminary of the Church of Scotland. High honors, we both know. Yeah, all well, about high, high, high honors. honors. <laughs> we, I don't even know how to spell high honors. We've read about people yeah, who had read. high honors. He did all that, though, despite the fact that he was visually impaired. And as a boy, he had only partial vision, and his sight continued to fail. He himself never wrote about the details, but it's said that he was engaged to be married. And just before the marriage, when his fiance realized that he would be totally blind, she left him. And Matheson said that in the midst of what he called a severe mental suffering, he clung to the unfailing love of God and the great compassion of God. And he wrote that well-known hymn, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. If you're a child of God and you've been involved in sin, your life may be falling apart around you and people in your life may leave you, but God never will. There's no sin too great for him. And he wants to forgive you and he wants to bring you back home and he wants to restore you. And he does want you to know the joy of your salvation. Father, there's some guys listening to this today and they need to come back home. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in their heart as only you can do. I pray that you would bring your conviction. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would draw them back. Use Nathan's in their life. Let them see your grace through a person, inviting them back home, confronting them. But, Father, I pray that you would remind them that if they're a believer, they belong to you. And there's no sin too great for you. There is no brokenness that you can't put back together. Sometimes we have a hard time forgiving ourselves, but as Tunch reminded us, you take our sin and you say you put it behind your back. You remember it no more. You separate it as far as the east is from the west. You throw it in the depths of the sea. And I pray, Lord, that that person who's coming back home, would experience that love that will not let him go that love that will not let her go and i pray lord that you are honored by the decision that people make today both men and women we pray in christ's name amen